you were listening to the... That was Ali Bambaye by Mandrill. And just listening to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor in just a matter of minutes, Jim will be here with Gray Matters. Keep it locked. When life gets complicated, we sometimes forget the one beautifully simple thing WCBN-FM Ann Arbor asks of us to shine. To use our talents and blessings in ways that brighten everything, every life we touch. To uplift and encourage others with our hope and confidence in a future where WCBN FM Ann Arbor is, as always, still in charge of the world. Any day's a perfect time to see how bright your little light can shine. Let your light so shine. WCBN FM Ann Arbor would like to remind you that you are a precious shining star. Welcome to Gray Matters. Some uh, harsh and abrasive tones there from Radian. And that's something that came out just this year on the Thrill Jockey label. Uh, the record is called On Dark, Silent Off. And it's kind of uh, emblematic of uh, what kind of a year 2016 was. Jarring, abrasive. And uh, lots of unexpected bumps in the road. So, as uh, I welcome you to Gray Matters, uh, Dick Whaley on a holiday. So I'll be doing the show myself. I usually break it up with a little bit of music so it's not just uh, a voice. 
going on, uh, but I will have some uh, articles uh, to touch on, some issues to uh, relate to you, uh, or strike that, reverse it, and uh, we'll just carry on here at the end of a rather bizarre year. Um, I guess I'll open just to get this out of the way so I don't forget to do it. Um, with a brain damage award for CNN for their uh, way they set this story up. Of course, the uh, passing of pop stars is something that happened uh, quite frequently this year. And as we reach, you know, the the classic age of uh, rockers from the 60s and 70s and so forth are now uh, of certain mature years. That's a trend that's not likely to reverse. Uh, but when CNN announced today uh, the passing of George Michael, or at least repeating that story since it happened yesterday, I guess, uh, they began by saying, first David Bowie, then Prince, now George Michael. Well, with no offense to the fans of George Michael, who I know are numerous, compared to Prince or David Bowie, his musical output is a footnote. And I'm sure I speak for many WCBN listeners. A footnote at best. Um, I know Wham sold a lot of records. I know Wham were the first band to tour China. Uh, But when you compare the range and the depth of the incredible body of work that uh, Prince and David Bowie assembled, produced, created, disseminated throughout their lives, it's just a little absurd to uh, link his name with theirs in that way. Now, obviously, uh, a human is a human is a human, and it's always sad. But uh, I just struggle a little bit with that comparison. Um, I would have included Maurice White on the list uh, of true greats uh, whose extensive body of work uh, has entertained and enlightened hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people, I've enjoyed the uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire records. Um, So we'll just turn the page on that one and uh, move on to more substantive and serious matters. One of which, as I'll touch on a little bit later, is the uh, Mad Magazine end-of-year issue. Actually, it's beginning of the next year, um, which comes out now. Uh, The 20 Dumbest... People, events, and things of 2016. Well, one of the dumbest things, it's not on the Mad Magazine list, uh, that is really at the top of the charts for um, most pressing human crisis on the planet as we speak, is, of course, the ongoing carnage that is the Syrian civil war. And it's a complex issue that received uh, scant consideration during the uh, political campaign. And, of course, now that we're facing the prospect of a know-nothing cabinet assembled by a doofus-in-chief, the likelihood that uh, some positive uh, American impact on the situation uh, will be forthcoming is, I think, pretty much out the window. But uh, to rely on uh, television news for what's going on in Syria is a a grievous blunder. 
Um, there are not very many English language uh, journalists who really know the intricacies of the Middle East, like the British writer Robert Fisk, who uh, whose work is available in the Independent, a British newspaper which you can read online. And he has a piece uh, dated December twenty sixth. That's today, Boxing Day. Happy Boxing Day, everyone. Uh, that I'm going to uh, read for you now. It's a short little piece, but uh, again, this guy knows and understands the Middle East uh, quite well, and so I find him very reliable, and uh, as do many, many readers who know more than me. So I'm going to read you this short piece by Robert Fisk entitled, Do the Tragedies of Syria Signal the End of Arab Revolutions? And he writes the following. Just as the catastrophic Anglo-American invasion of Iraq brought an end to epic Western military adventures in the Middle East, so the tragedy of Syria ensures that there will be no more Arab revolutions. And it's taken just 13 blood-soaked years, from 2003 to 2016, to realign political power. Russia and Iran and the Shia Muslims of the region are now deciding its future. Bashar al-Assad cannot claim victory, but he is winning. Quote, Aleppo must be taken quickly before Mosul falls. Close quote. A Syrian brigadier announced uh, to me with a wan smile in the country's army headquarters in Damascus. And it did scarcely a month later. There were, and still are, little Aleppos all over Syria, in which the government and its armed jihadi opponents are playing good guy and bad guy, depending on who's besieging whom. When the Sunni militias end their siege of little Shia towns like Faur, the civilians flock to government lines. It's, reportedly as a, it's reported as a slightly incomprehensible local dispute. But when the regime's forces storm into eastern Aleppo, it's deplored around the world as a war crime. I've grown tired of repeating that, yes, war crimes are committed on both sides, and Bashir's forces are no squeaky clean military cadets. Although these days we have to remember that 42 Royal Marine Commandos were not that squeaky clean in Afghanistan. But the story of Aleppo is still being re-threaded into old loops. The brave but largely jihadi defenders disguised as nondescript rebels, their opponents compared to Milosevic's Serb killers or Saddam's gas bomb pilots. All this will soon end. Russia realized that Obama and the weeping liberals of Europe were bluffing about the overthrow of Bashir, who, unlike Putin's Ukrainian ally in Kiev, did not run away, and backed his army. The Economist made fun of Syrian soldiers because they supposedly couldn't march in step when Moscow staged a military parade at its Syrian airbase. But you don't have to march like the Wehrmacht to win battles. The Syrian Arab army, its real name, which is increasingly used, I notice, by the usual mountebanks who pose as experts, on the satellite channels, boasts that it has fought simultaneously on 80 fronts against ISIS, Nusra, and a clutch of other jihadi armies and free Syrian army men who changed sides. 
Which, given the infractions and bulges in front lines, is probably true, but perhaps not a military record to be proud of. It's one thing to recapture Palmyra from ISIS, quite another to lose it to ISIS again in the middle of the battle for eastern Aleppo. Syrian soldiers have a lot of time for their Hezbollah militia allies, who used to turn up on the battlefield better armed than the Syrians themselves, but are less enamored of the Iranian advisors, who supposedly know so much about open warfare. I have been present when an Iranian officer called a Syrian general stupid. In this case, the Iranian was probably right, but Syrian officers are far more battle-trained and experienced than the Revolutionary Guard from Tehran, who have sustained, along with their Afghan and Iraqi Shia allies, far more casualties than they believed possible. So, after almost five years of battle, the Syrian army is still in action. The Nusra and ISIS forces surrounding the government sector of the eastern Syrian city of Deir ez-Zur will almost certainly be its next target, after the retaking of Palmyra, but long before the ISIS capital of Raqqa, which will probably be retaken by Washington's Kurdish allies. And it is the Syrian army which will most likely have to rebuild the new Syria when the war eventually ends. It will certainly decide the future of the country. That doesn't mean the overthrow of Bashir. Neither among his official opponents, nor his mortal jihadi enemies, nor the corrupt and corrupted political opposition in Turkey, is there anyone who can challenge him on the ground. Even if they were successful, you can be sure that the same prisons and dungeons in Syria would be in operation within 24 hours to lock up and torture the new opposition to a new regime. Besides, Vladimir Putin has suffered enough humiliation after ISIS's second success in Palmyra, after the Russians staged a victory concert of peace in the Roman city only a few months ago. He is not going to permit the defenestration of Bashar al-Assad. Oddly, Western leaders remain stupefyingly unaware of the nature of the real struggle in Syria, and even which warlords they should support. Take the impotent Francois Hollande, who chose to tell the United Nations in September that Russia and Iran must compel Assad to make peace, because they would otherwise, along with the regime, quote, bear the responsibility for the division and chaos in Syria, close quote. All well and good. Yet only two months earlier, the same Hollande was demanding effective action against the Islamist Nusra Front among the defenders of Aleppo, although most of us decided not to tell our readers this, on the grounds that ISIS was in retreat and Nusra stood to take advantage of this. That is beyond dispute, a, a dispute, Holland pompously remarked, of ISIS's retreat. That was before the retaking of Palmyra by the same ISIS brigands. But perhaps Holland and his European allies and Washington are so besotted with their weak and flawed policies towards Syria, always supposing they can decide what these are, that they do not realize how power moves across battlefields. Instead of whinnying on about Russian brutality and mixing this in with Iranian cruelty and Hezbollah mendacity, they should be taking a close look at the mostly Sunni Muslim Syrian army, 
which has been fighting from the very start against its mostly Sunni Muslim jihadi enemies. They have always regarded Nusra, our allies in eastern Aleppo, since they are paid by our Gulf chums and armed by us, to be more dangerous than ISIS. The Syrian army are right. Here, at least, Holland must surely agree with their conclusion. Yet the power of illusion matters more to us. If the West can't retake Mosul from ISIS, they could hardly have stopped the Syrians retaking eastern Aleppo. But they could easily encourage the Western media to concentrate on the beastly Russians in Aleppo rather than the fearful casualties inflicted on America's allies in Mosul. The reporting on Aleppo these past weeks has sounded much like the accounts of British war correspondents in the First World War. And the Russians could encourage their own tame media to concentrate on the victory at Aleppo rather than the de defeat at Palmyra. As for Mosul, it's mysteriously vanished from our news. I wonder why. And how many died in Palmyra? And, for that matter, how many were really captive in eastern Aleppo? Was it really 250,000, or was it 100,000? I came across a news report a few weeks ago which gave two overall statistics for fatalities in the entire Syrian war. 400,000, then, a few paragraphs later, 500,000. Well, which is it? I'm always reminded of the Nazi bombing of Rotterdam in 1940 when the Allies announced that 30,000 civilians had been killed. For years, this was the authentic figure. Then, after the war, it turned out that the real figure, though hor horrible enough, was only around 900, 33 times less than the official version. Makes you wonder, doesn't it, what Syria's statistics really are? And if we can't get those right, what are we doing interfering in the Syrian war? Not that it matters. Russia is back in the Middle East. Iran is securing its political semicircle of Tehran, Baghdad, Damascus, Beirut. And if the Gulf Arabs, or the Americans, want to re-involve themselves, they can chat to Putin, or to Assad. That is Robert Fisk, writing for the Independent newspaper in Ingiland. Well, let's move now to a few little tidbits. Coal, of course, was something that uh, Donald Trump talked a lot about bringing back. Let's go back to coal. But uh, more and more stories emerging from China in which the uh, incredible smog and pollution in that country, a byproduct of their rapid industrialization, uh, is staggering in these descriptions. Uh, here's an article from uh, December 22nd. Smog grips China, but exam goes on. As the grimy gray smog spreading across northern China settled on the town of Lingqi, its schools received a red alert notice to cancel classes and protect children from the acrid haze. But Linky Number 1 Middle School decided it would go ahead with exams it holds outside. These exams are held outside so that students can be more closely monitored, and uh, it's hoped that cheating on exams can be prevented. Um, <laughs> these students were placed in front of stools which were functioning as desks, 
Uh, but in this case, I'm reading the article again now, the students were bathed in cold, filthy air so dense that those at the back of the soccer field seemed like ghostly imprints in the air. Uh, the principal of this school has since been suspended for his violation of the red alert in which students are actually supposed to be sent home. Just to give you a statistical uh, concept of just how bad this air quality is, uh, the pollution index uh, for PM2.5, which is tiny airborne particles of soot and dirt, especially hazardous to health, uh, were registered as 1,000 micrograms per cubic meter on the day in question where this uh, group of school children was made to take an exam out of doors. Uh, the World Health Organization recommends maximum daily exposure of 25 micrograms of PM2.5 per cubic meter. So this is pretty horrible uh, conditions. And, of course, that's the price that China pays for their rapid industrial growth, their uh, resurgence in steelmaking, and uh, other heavy industries. Of course, people old enough here can remember when the pollution was really bad here. And, of course, it's a complex issue. Uh, it's nice to have clean air. It's also nice to have jobs. Uh, it, there must be a way to have both. I'm not sure that we'll be able to get to that. On another climate-related note, uh, weather, atmosphere, uh, spiking temperatures in the Arctic startle scientists. A vicious cycle as sea ice is lost. This by Henry Fountain and John Schwartz. A spate of extreme warmth in the Arctic over the past two months has startled scientists. In mid-November, parts of the Arctic were more than 35 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than observed averages. Uh, Jeremy Mathis, who directs the Arctic Research Program for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, said that the warmth had led to a later-than-usual freeze-up of ice in the Arctic Ocean. That, in turn, may lead to record-low ice coverage uh, in the spring and summer, which could lead to more warming because there will be less ice to reflect the sun's rays and more darker exposed ocean to absorb them. We'll be watching this very closely in the summer of 2017, Dr. Mathis said in an interview. Now, just to re-articulate the phenomena at play here, because it was warmer in November, it took the ice longer to arrive, to thicken. Um, and so this leads to uh, what's called a positive feedback loop, uh, and jumping ahead into the article, this is explained more clearly. While the Earth overall has been warming, 2015 set a record for warmth, and 2016 is expected to exceed it, the Arctic has been warming at least twice as fast as the global average, in part because scientists say that is because of declines in sea ice coverage. Ice typically reflects from about half to 70% of the solar energy that hits it. You know how much glare there is when there's snow on the ground. It's the same uh, principle. Uh, ice and snow reflect. Uh, and so the water, um, excuse me, ice typically reflects solar energy that hits it, but water reflects only 6%. And so the water warms. That melts more ice, which in turn leads to more exposed ocean and still more melting. And 
again, more absorption of solar heat, uh, making the oceans warmer and warmer and warmer and warmer. Of course, this is going to have a most uh, direct impact on communities that rely on hunting and fishing for their food sources, uh, Inuit tribes uh, and folks who live in northern climes. Uh, should obviously be uh, concerned and alarmed about this. But the fact is, uh, as Dr. Mathis notes at the close of the article, uh, we need people to know and understand that the Arctic is going to have an impact on their lives no matter where they live. Well, when you're packing your cabinet with climate change deniers and uh, those who would uh, refute scientific fact for ideological or even worse economic purposes uh, it's no wonder that people are concerned well I would like to talk a little bit about the articles uh, of December 21st about Exxon's uh, appointment to the Secretary of State position, and not Exxon itself as a corporation, obviously, but for all practical purposes, yes, Exxon will be Secretary of State because the chief executive of Exxon, Rex Tillerson, uh, is just about as cozy with uh, Putin's number one henchman as it's possible to be without uh, engaging in a uh, marriage service, I suppose. And this is uh, a little startling, and uh, I, I can hardly wait for the confirmation hearings on Rex W. Tillerson, who as late as 2008 was quoted as saying that Russia must improve the functioning of its judicial system and its judiciary. There is no respect for the rule of law in Russia today. Well, he was saying that as a reason why... Uh, Exxon couldn't do more business with Russia. At that time, he was the member, uh, a member of the U.S.-Russia Business Council. Um, but, of course, he changed his tune when he realized that the key to success in Russia, and that is, what do you mean by success? The key to Exxon uh, making money out of Russia was to curry personal relationships and uh, close, close friendship with the dictator. And uh, that's a bizarre approach for a Secretary of State to have a how can we make money uh, first and what's uh, for the benefit of the United States somewhere in the background. We'll have to talk about that in greater detail at a later date as I'm rapidly running out of time. And I did want to get to this article. It's one I've been wanting to get to for a couple of weeks now. Uh, it's from Afghanistan, and it makes me wonder if uh, now we're living in a new age where decorum is out the window and, uh, you know, the Republican Congress announced at the beginning of Obama's first term that they were determined to make sure he did not succeed. Uh, that's unheralded and uh a bizarre first in American history to refuse to uh, govern. Uh, but we're, who knows where we're headed with the uh, incoming chief executive. He might uh, take uh, an example from Afghanistan. 
where uh, this is November 28th, Afghan vice president seen abducting a rival. Now, this is a hypothetical, but I personally can just imagine Trumpenstein behaving in just this sort of manner. What happened in Afghanistan? Well, as heavy snow fell on the muddy arena in northern Afghanistan, where a traditional game of buzkashi, two teams of horsemen fighting for a dead goat, was underway on Friday, a scuffle broke out near the stands. Now, I'm not saying buzkashi is going to become a big national sport here, but I could see it becoming a, a popular treat in Washington, D.C. in the months to come. But what is this scuffle? It's not just another group of hot-headed fans. It's the vice president of Afghanistan, General Abdul Rashid Dostum. And uh, who is he scuffling with? A political rival named Ahmad Ishi. Uh, the vice president of Af- Afghanistan uh, knocked his opponent to the ground, put his foot on the chest of the opponent, and then the general's bodyguards came in, and let's see here. Dostum came here. He walked around the stadium. He called Ahmad Ishi over to him, said a witness, who was among 5,000 spectators at the game. After talking with him for a couple of minutes, he punched him, and his bodyguards started beating him with AK-47s. They beat Ahmad very badly and in a barbaric way, and then uh, they abducted him, and no one knows where he is now. Hmm. How curious. Uh, And yet it's an effective way for a tribal chieftain to maintain his authority over his political rivals. And I'm joined now here in the studio by Jerry Mack. It's a good thing that's not how we transition radio here at WCBN. (laughs) Beaten to the ground and... Have an AK-47 shoved up your nose. Yeah, we do things a little different here in America, and uh, that's why we're proud to be part of a civilized uh, country with a tradition of laws and standards that go back to the Enlightenment. Yes, and hopefully those will continue for the most part, that reason will persevere over whatever the alternative is. Well said. Well, stay tuned for the blues are coming up next here with Yazoo City Calling on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Thanks for listening. Green Matters will be back next week. You are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor.